I have a five-month-old son, almost five months old, if you didn't know. His name is Titus. And there is something really, really interesting biblically about Titus. It doesn't matter what time it is. It doesn't matter where we are or where we're about to go. If he is hungry, he's going to let us know. All right, we, no matter, we just went on a trip to see my in-laws up in Kansas City, Missouri, and it don't matter if we're at the airport, it don't matter if we're on a plane next to a 75-year-old angry gal who leaned over and says, is he going to do this the whole time? I said, I hope not. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's 3 a.m. in the morning and me and my wife laying there and he's hungry, he's going to let us know. He has no shame when he is hungry and he needs to eat, he's going to let us know. And I thought that was so biblical considering the text that we are looking at this morning. If you haven't, turn to Matthew 5, chapter 6. Because we're talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I ask you, what if we hungered for God like Titus hungers for food? What if that were our attitude and disposition to the God of the universe, that we will only be satisfied when we are filled with the righteousness of God in Christ? It's a lot like the psalmist in Psalm 42, 1 through 2, and it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. God, it longs for you. My soul, it thirsts for God, for the living God. And then ask the question, when shall I come and appear before God? That's the longing of the psalmist. When do I get to be with you? When do I get to be satisfied in you eternally? Because I thirst for you. I long for you. I need you. You see, hungering for God in its very essence, right, fundamentally, at its most basic form, is a hunger for righteousness. When we hunger for God, that is its most basic form, is a hunger for righteousness. Because before God, there is perfect righteousness, perfect justice. All things are right and where they ought to be. Right? That's what you want, isn't it? That's what I want. We look around at the world, and that's not what we got. So at a basic level, when we hunger for God, what we're hungering for is righteousness. As a matter of fact, that is our, our main point that I want to show you, that kingdom happiness is experienced by those who are counted righteous before God through Jesus Christ and who obey him. That's, that's the fundamental point of the text this morning, that kingdom happiness is experienced by those who are counted righteous before God through Jesus Christ, and obey him. You want to experience kingdom happiness, that is the confines, the context, the parameters in how humans and how people experience kingdom happiness. By trusting in Christ, by finding their righteousness, not in themselves, but in Christ, and that we would follow him. Pastor Evan read the text, but let's just relook at it. If you flip there in Matthew 5, 6 in your Bible... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be 
satisfied, happy, right? Blessed, makarios. Every week we talk about makarios means happy, blessed, fortunate are those who have a deep longing for righteousness because they will be satisfied. We need to ask the question, though, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Let's define it, at least in the simplest form. Righteousness is doing what God desires. Righteousness is doing what God desires. Everything that you can think about righteousness stems from that. Well, I thought we weren't righteous, only, only Christ was righteous. Yes, Christ is righteous. Why? Because in every single way ever in the history of the universe, from eternity past, eternity present, eternity future, Jesus does what God desires, right? That's why we aren't righteous, because we do not do what God desires. And when we get to eternity, we are going to be perfected in righteousness. Why? Because we have a constant state and living in a constant state of doing what God desires. So righteousness in its simplest form is doing what God desires. One commentator puts it this way. Jesus here in this text is declaring that the deepest desire of every person ought to be, this is every person, not just the Christian, Every person ought to be to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is, we know that every person doesn't, but those who do, we understand it this way, that it's the spirit-prompted desire that would lead a person to salvation first and fundamentally. A hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God is what it takes to lead someone to salvation. And then after that, to keep him strong and faithful once he is in the kingdom. So you see, righteousness extends past justification, which we'll talk about this morning. It's, it's beyond salvation. It is for salvation, but it's for more than just salvation. There's more to righteousness than just an imputation of Christ's righteousness on me for salvation for me to be in eternity. There's so much more that goes along with that afterwards, and it's in our sanctification. But pointing back to the quote, once... Uh, Spirit-prompted desire, righteousness is the spirit-prompted desire for one, the hunger to lead a person to salvation and to keep him strong once he is in the kingdom. Right? That's the hunger and thirsting for righteousness is to keep us strong as the spirit is guiding us to be strong and to be faithful once we are Christians. It is also the only ambition, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, is the only ambition that when fulfilled brings enduring happiness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the only ambition that, when fulfilled, brings enduring happiness. This morning, we're going to look at three ways that I believe that we can accurately live out this kind of righteousness that brings out kingdom happiness, that brings you and it brings me, that brings every soul who is in Christ kingdom happiness. And there are three ways I believe you're going to do that. And the first way, uh, you can write it down in your note, is positional righteousness, positional righteousness. And you can write it a whole, different, a whole lot of different ways because uh, historically we've defined positional righteousness the same, but we use a lot of synonyms, right? Positional righteousness, justification, salvation, regeneration, all those things. So the, the definition of being positionally righteous. That means before the God of the universe on his throne, in his presence through Christ, I am positionally, my position in the sight of God is seen as righteousness th- through Christ. That's what it means to be positionally righteous. And every person should hunger for that kind of positional righteousness in God's presence. That means that 
in Christ, I am in a position before God that is right and it is satisfied because I can commune with the Father because of the righteousness that I have been given. And that is the first way that we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is why hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the predecessor of anyone's salvation. But before anyone gets saved, before anyone is right in the sight of God the Father in heaven, there has to be a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, there's going to be a hunger and thirst for righteousness because you have a deprivation in your own life of hungering and thirsting because you don't have righteousness. There is no righteousness in your life. So, of course, you should be hungering for it if you want righteousness. And that's why it's a predecessor for salvation because what we do is, see, I can't get that. I'm hungry for that. That's Titus waking up at 3 in the morning saying, I can't feed myself. I'm hungry. I need that given to me. In the same way, that's us. Right? For us, we want to be positionally righteous in the sight of God. We understand that we can't. We do not have what it takes to be right in the sight of God the Father. It has to be something given to us. Or church history says it imputed, an imputation. As a matter of fact, the great reformer Martin Luther describes it this way. That it's called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And he describes it as an alien righteousness. I love that. That's one of my favorite terms, alien righteousness. It's a righteousness and it's alien because it isn't yours. It is not found in you or around you. The only way you get it is because an outside person has given it to you. You cannot produce it on your own. But the good news is it is given to us by Jesus. It's offered to those who will trust in Christ for the righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear what I said, right? You are given the righteousness that is required. I don't want you to make a mistake when you think about the gospel. Because when it comes to the gospel, righteousness is the requirement. The fundamental message of the gospel is righteousness is required and you don't have it. If you want to be in eternity with God, if you want to be in a satisfied relationship with God the Father through Christ, you have to be sufficiently, fully righteous. That's the fundamental reason we need the gospel. And you're an alien to that. It didn't belong. You're not a citizen of that place. You're not part of that planet. You're not from the planet of righteousness. What we are is alienated. But Jesus, not only a citizen of heaven, but the king of heaven, has come down to invite you and to invite me into his kingdom by not just looking over your sin, not just by trying to get around your sin and trying to make an exception for, this, for you and for me to, to find out how we can get in there. Right? That's not what it is. It's that, that he offers us forensic righteousness. Right? That's a legal righteousness. Right? That means even under a microscope, you're seen righteous simply because it's imputed upon you. So anything that is seen on you doesn't come from you. It comes from Christ. Because it comes from Christ, you are fully, justifiably, legally righteous in the sight of God. That's the only way that your hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. You want to be right? You want to be right with God? 
You want to be made perfect? You, you want to quit sinning, right? You, you, you long for a day where sin is not part of your identity, part of who you are, part of the daily life that you live? Only one way. The imputation of Christ's righteousness on you. And when, and when we do, right, when we turn from our sin, and we trust in him, every sinner who trusts in him for that righteousness, he says, welcome home. Welcome, welcome to my kingdom. Isn't that good news? Right? That's the good news of the gospel. He's welcome home. My kingdom is your kingdom. But remember, you didn't get in my kingdom through living in your kingdom. You got to my kingdom because you realize your kingdom has fallen. And the only way you get to this kingdom is by trusting in me and my righteousness. Don't you hunger for that? Aren't you hungry for that? Don't you have a thirst and desire for that? It's exactly what this text is talking about. As a matter of fact, you can look at that through even the last few Beatitudes that we've looked at, can't we? Because it's these previous Beatitudes that lay out the template that leads us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, if you're in your scripture, just look at it. You can look at the text before that. Verses 3, verses 4, verses 5. Right? It says there that they're impoverished, that they're poor. There ain't nothing that makes you more hungry than being poor. There, there ain't nobody you look around that is more hungry and thirsty than people who are in poverty. And we are, aren't we? Spiritually impoverished. Verse 4, you want to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness? You are because you're mourning over what? Sin. Blessed are those who mourn. You look in the mirror and you say, I am completely deficient. I am righteous deficient. I now mourn over that. And I can't get, I cannot fill and be satisfied with my self-righteousness because I don't have any. And then they're humble. Look at verse 5. They're humble. They're meek. Why? We're humble before God. We're meek before God. Why? Because we understand that we can't do it. We can't get it apart from him imputing it, giving it, transferring it to you and me. Right? It's only these people who are going to find ultimate satisfaction. Because they're not going to find it in themselves, but in Christ. I want you to sum all of that up in point number one. You need to find satisfaction in Christ's righteousness. Find satisfaction in Christ's righteousness. There have been thousands and thousands of people who have been stranded at sea. Thousands. Thousands. I actually enjoy thoroughly watching documentaries of people being lost at sea and what happens to them through a series of events and their inevitable rescue from a ship far away. Uh, but I think a lot about finding satisfaction in Christ's righteousness, a lot like being lost at sea. If you don't see it that way, see it that way. Get it? See it? See? Lost at sea? <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Lost at sea. You should see it that way because that is exactly what it is in the Christian life. You and me, like all of these documentaries of people being lost at sea, are completely stranded. And you're going to get thirsty, aren't you? As a matter of fact, one of the ways that people die the most when they're stranded at sea is not because they're eaten by a shark, much to my chagrin, uh, but because they dehydrate and they die through dehydration. Now, interestingly enough, when you're stranded at sea, you see nothing around you but wonderful, blue, delicious salt water. But you know, once you start drinking salt water, what is it going to do? 
It's going to speed up the dehydration, right? It's going to speed up the timeline for when you die. There's a lot like self-righteousness and the righteousness that purifies, cleanses, and makes us right in the sight of God, right? You, you look in this world right now, and you're like, there's a lot of ways that I can be fulfilled and happy. It's called salt water. And the more you drink it, the closer and the quicker you're going to get to death. The quicker and closer you're going to get to understanding why those things do not cleanse you, do not purify you, and do not bring you into God's kingdom. And it may look good, and there may be a lot of it, and it may look nice, and it may feel nice, but it's not nice. And like these people find out when they're stranded, there is no hope. There's nothing like being in a small rescue boat. And looking, and as far as you can see, there's no way for you to get saved. You ain't swimming to shore. You ain't drinking that water. There's things in that water that will eat you. But they sit there, and they wait, and they trust, and they look out, and they see from a long way away a rescue vessel. And they say, my hope for salvation is found way over there, not here, over there. And as it gets closer and they see it, they are thirsty. Right? They have desire. And they say, I want what you're going to give. I can't find it. Not in my boat. Not in my life raft. I'm not going to find it. That's the same way Christ's righteousness works. Right? You ain't going to find it on your life raft. You're not going to find it at home. You're not going to find it in, in a deep place in your heart. You find the only deep thing you're going to find in your heart is extreme wickedness. Isn't that what the Bible says? Right? Who can know the heart is wicked. But here, we can have Christ's righteousness. That it finds you as you're stranded, and it takes you, and he fills you with the life-given substance of righteousness that leads to redemption, justification, salvation, positional righteousness before God. And it didn't come from me. And it didn't come from you. And if you want to be satisfied, you have to be satisfied in Christ's righteousness. And you got to have it and get it from Christ. Isaiah 55. You can jot that down. Isaiah 55. The first three verses. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. You're thirsty. There's something, you ain't going to find it where you're at. You need to come, and you need to come get it. Come to the waters. He who has no money, he who is poor, come buy from me and eat. You ain't got it, you can come get it from me. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What do you got to do? Come to me. Come to God. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Ain't that the question of the century? Why do you spend so much time and so much money on that which will not satisfy? And you do it and you know. I do it and I know. You waste your time, you waste your money on it, and you're like, I'm going to feel better. And then you do it and you waste your time and you waste your money and you get done and you put your hands on your hips and say, I don't feel any better. Why do you waste your time on that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, verse 2, the end of it, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food, verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. There's your answer. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, right, listen, here, listen 
to this word so that your soul may live. There is not the gospel in the Old Testament. Listen to me. Come to me that your soul may live. Because you ain't going to be satisfied in any other way. Not only are you not going to be satisfied, you're going to be completely dissatisfied because the reality of the matter is God the Father is dissatisfied with everyone outside of Christ. And so you ain't going to find satisfaction in anything outside of that which will make you satisfactory in the sight of God. And the only way you're going to do that is through Christ. And why, how can I find that satisfaction? I get, okay, well, I need to be, uh, find my righteousness in Christ. How's that going to satisfy me? Other than I get it, that I'm going to be right in the sight of God, which that should be while you're satisfied. Because anybody outside of Christ is not right in the sight of God. You are not satisfactory, right? You do not uh, meet the standard of being in relationship with God because he is holy and you are not. As a matter of fact, scripture says it this way, you are an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. And in Christ, you become a child of God. You should be satisfied that when the Father sees you, he sees Christ in you. That's satisfactory, isn't it? When I look at myself, all the time, a lot of times I'm thinking, oh man, there's a lot to desire there. But when God the Father looks at me, he loves me because he loves Christ. Do you see that? And so why is God's love unconditional for me? Because it's unconditional for Jesus. Why do I have to question God's love for me? Because I don't have to question God's love for his son. Do you see how this doesn't become about you? It becomes about Christ. It doesn't become about how much God loves you. It becomes how much God loves Jesus. And if you're in Christ, welcome. You are unconditionally loved by the Father. A lot of, there's a lot of peace there, a lot of comfort there. You can't lose the love of God if it's round up and tied to the Son. That's positional righteousness, my friends. You don't have to wonder if God loves you because he loves Jesus. And if you're in Christ, he loves you unconditionally, without measure, abundantly, satisfactory, eternally satisfied in the Son. And this, this is for those of us, right, who maybe thought the gospel was just your one-way ticket into eternity, and you really didn't realize that the gospel is literally for you and for me. The gospel is our daily lifeline. Right? If you're one of those who like, hey, I responded to the gospel, did that a long time ago, and I, I kind of moved past that phase. Wrong. The Christian never moves past the stage of needing the gospel preached to them in their heart and their life every single day. Because the thing that reminds you of the love that God has for the Christian is the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ has come and imputed his righteousness upon you and your sin has been imputed upon him. You've given him your sin. He has taken it from you and he has given you his righteousness. You've got to realize that the gospel is not just the first, it's not the beginning, right? Well, I moved, moved past that. You don't move past the gospel. The gospel is your life every single day. And if you forget that, and you forget the importance of positional righteousness, not only are the rest of this sermon not going to be helpful for you, the rest of your life you're going to find unsatisfactory. Even if you're a Christian, you're going to find the rest of your life unsatisfactory because you're going to miss it so many ways from Sunday because you forget the satisfaction you should have in the righteousness of Christ. What does the righteousness of Christ do in your life right now? That's a good question, isn't it? You've got to have a new nature. Right? You have a new nature 
in Christ. And it's that new nature, that positional righteousness you have. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. That one, that you are a new creation that, that will thrust you as a believer into, listen to this, an increasing hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see why you got to keep your eyes on the gospel? Because it's not that, oh, when I get saved, I'm no longer going to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. False. You're going to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness even more. So that's why so many people, once they get saved and they decide, when they say, oh, I gave my life to Christ, but I just want, I want to keep living for me. You've missed the gospel. You missed You swung for the fence and you missed because you don't realize the gospel, Christ's righteousness, gives you a new nature. And that new nature is going to make you more hungry and more thirsty. So you think, it oh, the gospel got me into heaven, now I can just do whatever I want and wait for him. No, you're going to be emaciated, you're going to be starving, you're going to be unsatisfied because you're not walking with the Lord because you've been given a new nature. But now your new nature is living in the flesh. It's not going to work. You missed the gospel. The gospel is meant to make you righteous in the sight of God through Christ and then propel you toward a life of progressive righteousness. Right? That's the second thing I want you to write. Progressive righteousness. You're positionally righteous in the sight of God through Christ. And then Christ says, when I leave, I'm going to give you the helper, the Holy Spirit. And when I give you the Holy Spirit, he is going to progressively sanctify you. He's going to progressively make you righteous. He's going to conform you into the image of God, and he's going to thrust you toward a life of righteousness. And you say, well, what if I just want to keep going the wrong way? Well, he's going to be there pushing you the right way. You ever felt that as a Christian? Right? You're going the wrong way, and it's miserable. Welcome to life in the Spirit. And this is why, again, you're missing the gospel if you think, well, I've been miserable since that time. Well, if you're really a Christian, welcome. That's called the love of the Father. And the love of the Father isn't going to allow you to keep walking in disobedience to him. He's going to correct you. He's going to guide you. He's going to move you toward righteousness. Progressive righteousness is is simply this. that You're going to have an ever-growing hunger to be right in the sight of God, and you are in Christ. But you're also going to have an ever-growing hunger to have right conduct in the sight of God. You're going to have a desire to have right conduct in the sight of God. Isn't that scary? Don't those people just get scary when we start talking about having to live right, having to have right conduct, talking about morality? That is exactly what Matthew shows us in the gospel of Matthew about how much time Jesus spends showing us how much he cares about how we actually live. Right? We, we all love it when he hounds on the Pharisees, don't we? You love it because they're religious leaders, right? We, we love it when he gets on those religious leaders, those religious people, you know? Those religious leaders think they got it all right. What did he hound them on? Not living rightly. Then we're like, oh, that's us. That's all, all of us, right? Jesus is very concerned with how you live and that you live rightly because that's what righteousness is, right? Doing what God desires. He's very concerned with you positionally righteous, that you would be progressively righteous, that you'd be progressively sanctified. Another commentator, Grant Osborne, says that righteousness is a particularly important term for Matthew, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And in each of those contexts, it refers to right conduct in the eyes of God. Do you see that? 
He's not talking about positional righteousness a lot in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying this is about you actually acting right. This is about you actually, in the sight of God, doing what is right. Now, we know, according to the Sermon on the Mount, you can't do that if you're not positionally righteous. But just because you're positionally righteous doesn't mean God doesn't have a standard for us to be progressively righteous. That we would not be conformed. That we would not be walking in step with the Spirit. Jesus actually says in Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what the people did. Why? Because they knew. Man, those Pharisees got a lot wrong. But what they strive for every day is doing what's right in God's eyes. Right? And I know we want to we hound the Pharisees. We want to make them something. We want to make them this bad, evil person. But you recognize why they added more laws. Because they didn't even want to get close to breaking the law of God. They wanted to be 20 steps back. And in doing that, yes, they broke the law of God. Right? But... The intention in the heart was that I'm doing what God wants. I want to make sure I'm so far away from sin that if the Bible says don't work on the Sabbath, I ain't even going to pick up no stick. I'm not even going to. If you go there now into into Jerusalem, uh, there's an elevator just for Orthodox Jews so they don't have to push the elevator button to go up because if you start a spark, make fire, you can't make fire. That's That's against the law on the Sabbath. And so they have... An elevator where you don't have to push the button because a button creates a spark and electricity, and that's work. So they actually have an elevator that you just get into, and it just stops at every level. And you just get off when it's time for you to get off. Because I don't, I don't want to break God's law. Isn't that hungry and thirsty? I mean, good, I get it, right? That ain't how you're going to be righteous inside of God. Like, I'm not going to get to heaven, and God's not going to say, love that elevator idea. But I love the heart and the hunger and thirst to do what is right. And I love that hunger and thirst. Misguided, oh yeah. But hungry and thirsty for the righteousness. And if your righteousness doesn't exceed that, then you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is so much concerned with how we live, like how we act. And yes, the imputation of Christ's righteousness makes you positionally righteous in Christ. But for what reason? Because your life was so in sin and so separated from God that every action and everything you did made you an enemy of God. And therefore you were saved to wipe away that sin and then to, as Romans teaches us, to turn you and move you toward God. There's that continual longing for righteousness and for righteous living that should cause us to do this, and it's point number two, to pursue progressive righteousness. You need to pursue progressive righteousness. Pursuing progressive righteousness is simply this. It's you cooperating and yielding to the work of the Spirit. We have to ask the question, why did God give us his Holy Spirit? Well, I have to quote scripture. But when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So in your life, As much as he's the comforter and helper, he also is in your life to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Why? Because God has a stake in his children living righteously for him. You have objections, right? There's people that have objections. Hopefully not you. People say, I can sin and God has forgiven me because I'm in Christ. 
Yes, but if that's your excuse to sin, not only does Paul have a lot to say in Romans, you've, again, taken a big swing at the gospel and completely missed. It's like you need salvation because you're sinning. You obviously don't see the penalty in the problem with sin if you think that now that, now that that's wiped clean, I can just continue doing what I want. What does Paul say? By no means, by no means do we do that. We pursue progressive righteousness. Why? Jot down 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We've got eight verses here, so maybe you can just flip there. You can read along with me. 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 1. No, verse 1. It says there in verse 1, chapter 4, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk, peripateo, right? So it's not just saying how you're actually walking down the path. It's like, no, how you're living, right? Just as you received from us how you should be living, And how you should be pleasing God, that's what it says in verse 1, right? Just as you are doing, I love this, This isn't that just a great statement for progressive righteousness? You are living and walking to please God, but I'm also saying that you do it more and more. Isn't that a statement of progressive righteousness, of progressive sanctification that, hey, Thessalonians, you're doing great. You need to keep going and do it more and more. But what else does he say? For you know, verse 2, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. How many times have you wanted to hear that in a sermon? It's right here in Scripture. You want to know the will of God? Here it is. This is the will of God. I mean, this is going to change your life. Right here, everyone's going to go out and make some decisions right now. Your sanctification. Did you hear that? You always want to know what God has wanted in your life. There it is. Circle it. Tear it out. Don't tear it out. (laughs) Your sanctification. And then look, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Man, that just, that did not go where you thought it was going, did it? It just didn't. But it, it, that's, what, that's what God's will is. Your sanctification, that you would be progressively righteous. I love this because when people who would argue that God, God, wants, that God doesn't want me to do anything with my behavior. He didn't care about my behavior. That word abstain, abstain. Stop doing it. Don't do it. Get away from it. Run away from it. Cease. Desist. Get away from it. Isn't that what the word abstain means? Stop. Abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body. This is just scripture, right? you got to understand you've been saved for a purpose. You have been saved for righteousness. It's actually what scripture says. You have been saved for righteousness. That you would live righteously. Are you going to fail? Yes. That's, That's what forgiveness is for. Why well, I say, God, forgive me. Empower me through your spirit that I may walk righteously in your way. And guess what? Because he loves the son. And I know, he's, I know that all things in the son are forgiven. And I have the righteousness of the son. I'm forgiven. Did you see how that? Easy. I can move on now. Because God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. Continue. You should know how to control your own body. Look, look at this. In holiness and honor, your life should be holy and honorable. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Right? Who doesn't live for God? Gentiles. Who are people who act contrary to God's righteousness? Gentiles, also known as people who don't follow God. That's who does that, but not you. Right? Verse 6, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, right? If your church doesn't warn you about sin, if your church doesn't warn you about the need to live for the Lord, you got to ask yourself, is it a biblical church? Because right here we see Paul, and we see him warning them. Now, of course, the context is sexual morality, but the broader context is righteousness. Verse 7 You should underline this one. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He has called us into holiness, that we would live for him, holy. That word means set apart, that we would be set apart. Therefore, verse 8, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. We're not going to live for righteousness. We're going to live for the Lord. We're not going to pursue progressive righteousness. We're not disregarding man. We're disregarding God. I love it. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you? He, why does he give you his Holy Spirit? To help you live in holiness. To help you in your sanctification. To, for you to cooperate with the third person of the triune Godhead. To walk in righteousness. Not through you. Through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Put it this way. You need to understand that your sanctification is a work of the Spirit. It is, right? Your sanctification is a work of the Spirit. But it entails your cooperation with the Spirit. The good news of that, remember, in Christ, you can change. Don't you love that? Right? In Christ, you can literally change. You've been given a new nature. What's left is this flesh. What's left is... Uh, I'll talk about it in a minute. What's left is this flesh. Okay, I, I, my spirit is not in line with my flesh. My flesh wants me to do things. My spirit is compelling me to do this. That's what's left. That's why you need the spirit. Because it's you cooperating with the work of the spirit who is taking the flesh and slaying the sin and walking you in righteousness. That's why we know you can change. Right? You couldn't change outside of Christ. You couldn't. Impossible. Right? You had the ability to sin. Uh, you had the desire to sin and no ability not to sin. That's the, that's the person before Christ. Right? You had the capacity, the ability, and no way not to. In Christ, we have, the we have the capacity and the ability, but hopefully no desire. And that's what the Spirit does. Ceases the desire for sin in our life. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 say this. You can just jot that down. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. You should train yourself for godliness. I love that. There is nothing that tells us more about our responsibility than this right here in 1 Timothy. You should train yourself for godliness. That means that's not just like, hey, let's make a plan. It's like, no, that exercise, right? Start training yourself. Start making a plan for righteousness, for godliness. For while bodily training, you remember we actually did this on New Year's. Our New Year's sermon was on this text. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way. I love that word value. Right? You, you may think in your world, in your life, that godliness and righteousness is not of supreme value. But here's what scripture says about the pursuit of godliness. It is of value in every single way. It is so valuable, and here's why. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I love that. You pursue godliness in Christ through cooperation with the Holy Spirit. It is of value in every way in this life and for the life to come. There are promises for those who trust God and obey God and live for him in the progressive righteousness in this life and the life to come.
That's some good news, isn't it? Why do I want to live for progressive righteousness? Because there's promise for this life, you know, very clearly in this life, right? The less I sin in this life, the less baggage I have in my life, the less things I have to mourn over about my life, the better I am able to parent my children and spouse my spouse, <laughs> to love my spouse, the better I'm able to pursue the mission of God. I am convinced of this, sidebar, okay? Sidebar. I'm convinced of this. A big reason why the church of God isn't so fruitful is because we spend so much time dealing with our own personal sin and it piling and piling up and realizing that, well, I can't go do that because look what I just did. Or, you know, well, now i got to go, you know, deal with this sin and this sin and this sin. Or, you know, we're not killing sin enough in our lives to be about the work of the Lord because we're, so, we're having to do so much self-work with our own sin that we can't actually be about the work of the Lord. That's a problem, isn't it? That is just a shame that our, the church, we have to spend so much time, like, reeling in our own sin and trying to get our own sin under control that we can't even be about the work of ministry. Right, that some, of, some of us, the only reason we're not qualified to be deacons, and some of you men, even elders, is simply because you don't get your sin under control through the power of the Spirit. Think about that. Some of us are not qualified biblically, according to Titus and 1 Timothy, to be deacons simply because they're not self-controlled. If you would just say, I want to cooperate with the Spirit because I want to be useful to God, how many leaders would we have in this church? How many more pastors would we have in this church? Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. But I'm saying the measurement of the qualifications for leadership is just right there in Scripture. And it isn't some magical fairy dust that says, well, you're, you're qualified and you're qualified. No, it's right there. Objective. Be self-controlled. Love the Lord. Run after the Lord. Help other people do that. Welcome to being qualified to be a church leader. See how it, that's my point. Off my soapbox back over here. We need more church leaders. <laughs> All right. Thirdly, thirdly, right? I gave you the first two. Here's the third one. Thirdly, the whole concept of righteousness, I love that you, you got to get ready for this. The whole concept of righteousness culminates in the believer receiving complete righteousness. That's your third one, complete righteousness. If I were a good alliter alliteration pastor, I would have put perfect righteousness. And you'd have positional, progressive, and perfect, but I think complete's a better word. Uh, complete righteousness in heaven. Complete righteousness in heaven. I had to put in heaven in there, in eternity, right, in the eternal state, uh, because you're not going to have this on this side of life. But remember, Godliness, training yourself in godliness holds promise for the life to come. Why? Because I know that there's going to be time I'm going to be completely righteous. Peter actually says this when he's writing his letter. He says in 2 Peter 3.13, But according to the promises of God, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the promise that we're giving, that God gives us right there. That we are waiting. Right here, I'm waiting. All right? My bags are packed. I'm not not doing righteousness because if I'm, if I'm wanting to go to a place that's dwelling in righteousness, I want to be in my life here progressively moving in righteousness and also positionally righteous. But in that, I'm waiting, you're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't that amazing? That's exciting. That's what we're waiting on, a place that's going to be completely righteous. And then here's what the person will look like. Here's what you and I will look like. Matthew 13, 43. In this time, in this place, then the righteous, and now, of course, right before this, we talked about the judgment of the unrighteous. I don't want, I don't want you to miss that part, because so much of Scripture, and I, love, and I love this because I think it just shows the heart of God. God's Word talks so much about judgment, 
uh, and so much about the judgment to come. And then a lot of times at the end of it, it's, he then wraps it up in the righteousness and, and the deliverance of the righteous. And like, sometimes I'm like, I want more about the deliverance of the righteous. But God is really concerned about the judgment of the unrighteous. Right? The promises for the righteous are going to be great. As a matter of fact, it says it right there. Matthew 13, 43. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You want to shine like the sun? I want to shine like the sun. Right? I'm about as dim as it gets. But one day I'm going to shine like the sun. That's the promise of the righteous. Those who are in Christ, those who are living for Christ, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is going to long for that. Every day of my life, this is the, uh, I think this is the counterintuitive character of being a Christian, isn't it? That I can both uh, be happy when it comes to my Christian faith, but also mourn. I wake up every day and man, I say, man, I just can't wait to get this off of me. I want to get this off of me. I want to be clothed in complete righteousness in my glorified body because this hurts. Physically, it hurts. I woke up this morning, excruciating pain. That's going to be done. But even in my, my righteousness, my thought life, the way that I, I carry myself, so many ways I'm like, God, I just can't wait for complete righteousness because there's coming a time the righteous will shine like the sun. And you can't long for that. Right? You can't long. You're going to shine like the sun. You're going to be so perfect. People are going to be like, ah, oh, you look too good. All right. Man, have you seen yourself today? Come on, church. See, the problem with complete righteousness now is, is manifold, but I'll at least give you two. Right? You're one, your fleshly desire. And uh, we, we don't like to talk about it a lot, but your fleshly desire, doesn't it lead you away from God? Doesn't it lead you away from righteousness? Don't you think uh, so many times you I can control my flesh, and then 30 minutes later, you're like, what did I just do? Right? You didn't control it, right? That's a problem with complete righteousness here. You have no, you have no ability to be completely righteous here. Uh, secondly is Satan's earthly reign. Right? There is no complete righteousness in a world where Satan has been given authority to reign. It's literally what we just read a few weeks ago, didn't it? Satan said, this place is mine, has been given to me. And then he says, Jesus, I'll give it to you if you obey me. So we know the world belongs to Satan. But we know in the time to come, your body will be changed and perfected. Amen. All right. All right. No more needing to look. I don't think there'll be a mirror in heaven. You won't need one. You'll be perfect. And two, Satan will be cast into hell and forever bound. Amen. Right. Forever bound. Complete righteousness. I mean, it's, it's, can you imagine? Do you hunger for that? Do you thirst for that right now? Because if you're not, we need to go have a salvation talk. Because all those who are in Christ are going to hunger for that. You're not going to be satisfied here. Your hunger is going to grow. That's why I love old Christians. I love them. Right? The older, the better. Okay? I love it. Love 80, 90, 130-year-old Christians. Love them. Okay, because I see them and they're like, I just can't wait. I mean, every day, I just can't wait. I can't wait for what? I can't wait to get to heaven. Why? Because they're hungry. They have, they've had decades of hunger and thirst building up for what is coming. And then I meet young Christians. I am a young Christian. And I meet young Christians like me and we're like, I can wait. I can wait. I got, I got things to do. I got some. It's like, go talk, go talk to them. Go talk to the old ones. Because that, that's the hunger and thirst that comes from someone who is progressively been 
in walking in sanctification, those who are positionally righteous, and those who have it right because they're longing for a better world and a better kingdom, one that will not be shaken. Put it this way in point number three. You need to long for complete righteousness. You need to long for it. Long. Desire it. Revelation 7, 15 and through 17. I read you 17 a couple weeks ago, but if you put these two verses before it, it gives you a really good picture of what's to come. It says, therefore they, right, the, the believers, right, they are before the throne of God and serving him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That's some good news for the next coming months here. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Complete righteousness in complete union with the Father and perfect harmony. There is no more Adam and Eve-esque people who sin and they run and they cover themselves because they're ashamed of their nakedness. We do that now in our flesh, don't we? We sin and we alienate ourselves from community. We alienate ourselves from God. God ain't moved, but you're ashamed. We're ashamed. There's coming a time where he will be our shelter and we'll be with his presence. He's going to feed us. He's going to satisfy us in every way. He's going to be there in the midst of us, shepherding us. He's going to guide us and he's going to wipe away every tear. You long for that? Is that something we look forward to? What I want from you, right, what I hope you get this morning is you should allow your hunger and your thirst for righteousness to draw your attention to the day when you will be satisfied with complete righteousness. You'll be perfectly holy and perfectly happy in the kingdom of God. Right? That's why I'm, just, I'm super not uh, committed to making you just feel so comfortable in our world right now. Because that's not, not my job. Okay, that's not my job. Do I think you're going to have kingdom happiness here? Yeah, in a lot of ways. But this, you ain't getting this here, right? You're going to get this in the kingdom of God. So a couple of ways we can do that. The Christian life is still marred with personal sin, isn't it? You have personal sin. We have societal sin, right? I mean, you see societal sin, right? You're not going to legislate morality. Sorry for our post-millennial people out there, right? Uh, you're not going to somehow Christianize this world. It's just not going to happen. This world's going to get worse and worse and worse, and then Christ is going to come redeem it, right? That's the biblical narrative there, isn't it? Uh, but we understand how big personal and societal sin is in our world, how broken our world is. Like, think about this. You got kids. Like, can you imagine just how broken this world is that you're having to raise your children in? Do you mourn over that? How are you going to educate your children? Are you going to let your kids watch Disney? Right? That, was a, that was a no-brainer you know, years ago. Now it's not. Okay? Are you gonna let your, who, who are you going to let your kids hang out with? What camps are you going to let them go to? I mean, every day of your life, you're dealt with this reality, although you may not see it that way. But when you start making decisions, what are you basing them on? How can I protect my children? How can I protect my family? How can I keep my family from unraveling in the sinful world that we have around us, every single day of your life, all you can think about in one way or the other is the sinful brokenness of our society. And then, many of us are going to think about, you're going to die, aren't you? You're going to die soon. As C.S. Lewis, I believe it was C.S. Lewis, who said this, a great many of us are going to die great painful deaths. He didn't say great, he said terrible. A great many of us are going to die terribly painful deaths. Like, isn't that the most poetic thing he's ever written? 
And I thought, you know what? You're right, though. Many of us are going to die excruciatingly painful deaths. That's what we can look forward to. Here. Right here. But then, right? I want to paint the picture here for you because we try, to paint, we try to paint this picture here way prettier than it really is. And I'm afraid that too many Christians don't even think about painting the picture of eternity. You don't even think about it. And I believe wholeheartedly as we read this scripture that it's designed to make you think about that. Because listen to this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that is the common eternity. You will be satisfied. You're going to be satisfied in eternity. Complete satisfaction in God. Think about that. Because you're not satisfied right now, I know. But you will be. Start thinking about it. Start thinking about it. And I pray, you much like my son, right, that you, you're not shame, you don't have no shame of crying out for hunger. I truly, I, I, if you woke up at 3 o'clock this morning and called me and said, Pastor Hayden, I hunger for righteousness. I'd be like, give me a minute, I'll give you the phone to Kayla, she'll take care of you. <laughs> but I... Pray, and I hope that you hunger and thirst for the righteousness that is in Christ positionally, positions you to be right in the sight of God, progressively makes you right as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and then it makes you long for the satisfaction of God in eternity. Church, that should be what marks us, because those people, happy are those people. Happy are those. You want to be happy here? It sounds so counterintuitive. Start thinking about there. There it is. Kingdom happiness belongs to those who will hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, it's my deep desire that this church would just hunger deeply for you. God, there will be people in this room who don't even know you. That right now they are hungering and thirsting for a righteousness, an alien righteousness that doesn't belong to them, that can be given to them. God, they feel like they're on the, in the sea right now, and they've do- dove into all the salt water, all the water that's going to kill, all the life that leads to death that they've been living. And God, they realize they need rescue. They need righteousness given to them because they have none of it in themselves. And I pray for them that they would repent They would turn from their sin, turn from their separation from you, and they would trust in Christ's righteousness. That in Christ, as they stand before you, God, you love them like you love your son. I pray that that would be a decision, a commitment that people would make in this room this morning and that they would tell somebody after service. God, my prayer for this church is that when people look at us as a church, they would see people who are hungering and thirsting for a world to come that we're hungering and thirsting for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that, God, we would be a church that truly exercises kingdom happiness, not because of our circumstances, but because of our position as citizens of your kingdom. God, thank you for this service. We pray that we would take it out with us, that we would continue resting in community, that we continue fellowshipping even after this song. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.